Welcome to book club. It is Advent, first week in Advent. It is cold, at least where we are and probably where most of you are. And we are reading the third volume of Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI's Jesus of Nazareth, The Infancy Narratives. Today's episode just covers the first chapter. Thanks for being here. Um, this chapter was a lot shorter than I expected it to be before I opened it up because the book is what, like 150 pages or something? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like 130 pages and the first chapter is what, 13, <laughs> 13 pages long? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sure that the rest of it, there will be a lot more in depth. I mean, I'm curious what your first impressions of this chapter was, if you've read the book before. I can't remember if you've actually read this before or not. Um and if there was anything from this chapter that you just sort of strike struck you first. So does this come from his big book on Jesus's life? It's the last of the trilogy. Yeah. Okay. So the first book is uh, like the public life to the transfiguration. And then the second book, if I remember, is essentially like transfiguration to passion week mm -hmm. kind of. And then this is the third book. It took, I think there was a bigger gap between this one and the rest of them. And it kind of came out if in the introduction, he calls it like a prologue or something. And he basically apologizes for taking so long to write it. Yeah. Um, Cause I'm imagine he was doing most of it while Pope. So he probably had a couple other things on his mind. Okay. <laughs> it's so also probably why it's so short. I read all these narratives during Lent many, many years ago, um, but I didn't remember it at all. So this is, it feels brand new. And my first impressions were, this is a lot of theology because, and, th and the reason I say that is because we're delving deep into one question and it's not in a very sort of like a mystical and spiritual way. It's so practical. It's like, let's look at the scriptures and let's look at the origins. Oh, these don't match. Let's discuss this in great detail. Well... <laughs> I mean, I guess you could say, yeah, I guess that's probably true. There are, so that's, I mean, that's one of the things I wrote a question mark by, because I wanted, I'm sure people have questions about that, because mm -hmm. that's something that is one of those really curious things where you think, well, if both of these are supposed to be true and they're both different, I don't understand how that works. Um, so yeah, you're right there. I mean, he is a theologian, so it probably, it makes sense that he, I mean, he's not writing it as a prayer book sort of firstly. But he does say that he's writing it so that people will know Jesus better. I mean, that's his point. Well, and I think that's the point is that to know some, you know, to love someone, you have to know someone. So learning theology is of great importance and especially learning the scriptures and also learning um, how to look at things this way where we sort of like, I really felt he dissected the history of Christ it, it like in a very human way, right? So this is very interesting to me. Like we're looking at his genealogy um, in great detail. So w what do you have to say about it, you know, as a theologian? Yeah, well, it's a, a lot of people, and myself included, might be confused why this is his first chapter. Because mm -hmm. um, the title is, Where Are You From?, and it's a quotation from John 19, right? It's the question that Pilate asks him. And so the obvious question is, why would you start a short book on the Christmas story where only Matthew 
and Luke have infancy narratives, but start from the trial of Passion Week in a totally different gospel. Yeah. Right? Yes. But the question is really important because it's not just a question in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, like he talks about. Um, but it's it's a really important question for the gospel of John, which is generally considered to be a more contemplative gospel, I guess you could put it that way, where John writes it at the end of his life. And so he's thinking about this stuff for decades. And the question of where Jesus is from is really important. Obviously, John has a particular answer to that. So he has a kind of infancy narrative, mm -hmm. right? But it's not an infancy narrative. It's like an origin story. And so this question, where are you from, is answered in a different way by all of the gospels. Not that they're contradicting each other, of course, but they have different things that they're curious about or different things that they think that their audience wants to know, right? If Matthew is written for a primarily Jewish audience, what he does makes sense. Mm -hmm. And if Luke is writing for a more kind of cosmopolitan audience, what he does makes sense too. But the question, where are you from, is a question about who you are and where you're going and what your mission mm -hmm. is, right? Yeah, yeah so it's weighty so you have to so he's looking at sort of the end but not the resurrection but like the end of his life in order to look at the beginning of his life so we have to go to the end of his life where he dies in order to understand the beginning that's really an yeah, amazing that's, thing that's really mysterious it's definitely and poetic. Part of it. i think it was fulton sheen who has like the famous quote about, and I'm sure he's not the one who invented it, but he's the one that I remember saying something to the effect of, um, right, the only, you know, Christ is the only one who's purposely born to die. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's, I mean, that's, but okay, so that's the end, right? Mm -hmm. But where are you from? So this is literally page one, chapter one, where are you from? Yeah, so but so starting off with Pilate is interesting because Pilate, the question comes in a series of questions that he's asking Jesus, or he's trying to figure out, first of all, what's happening, mm -hmm. right? Why have people brought you to me? Why do why are people so angry at you? Mm -hmm. uh, what did you do? So tell me. And then they they start this back and forth where they and they're asking questions back and forth. And the first question he asks. Right. He, 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 the first one that you people usually think of the famous, like, what is truth question? Right. But the where are you from question is the one moment in the entire conversation between the two of them where Pilate is actually afraid. Because the whole rest of the narrative, it's pretty obvious that Pilate is a terrible person. Right. <laughs> right. When he's not only doesn't care about what's happening at all, he doesn't know Jesus from Adam, no pun intended. Um, and he's purposely manipulating and antagonizing the crowds who brought him there. But this one question is the one where he's actually afraid because he talks about being, right, a king. And so this is the one question where Pilate actually thinks maybe there's actually something to this, right? Maybe you, even if it's not, you're the one God. At the very least, right, Pilate's a, you know, just a sort of faithful Roman. At the very least, he would assume 
that there's the possibility, well, maybe you're one of the gods, the gods. and I'm going to get in trouble. Yes. So actually, when I read this, this is exactly what I thought of. If you have to look at the time, and I was thinking all the pagan gods are like all these storytellings. Like this is why it's so important to read about actually the pagan gods and these myths. And because we need to understand these things for understanding Christ, because he came and he even enlightened the pagans, right? Like he came for the pagans as well. And you see with these like pagan God stories that there were so many um, things that are enlightened by Christ and clarified. So when he, when I, you know, you underlined here, he was frightened and I thought, well, I wonder if he thought like, is he one of the gods? You know, I mean, he had to have thought something. He believed in these higher beings. Um, So it wasn't like he believed nothing was there or something. So it, it makes sense that he would be frightened. Yeah. Yeah. I See, mean, I wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. yeah. But the question, I mean, to sort of take, hopefully move us past the first page um, <laughs> is yeah, well. like where you're from, right? It's so it's, it's crucial for our identity, who you are. It's crucial for your mission, like what you're here for. Um, we don't think about it. Usually, I mean, modern Americans, especially, I don't, maybe there's some people that are good at this, right? But we, we have a very short cultural and ancestral memory in the sense that if you ask me right now who my great grand like the names of all my great grandparents i would have no idea i wouldn't be able to tell you maybe i'd maybe be able to tell you one of them but i you know where you're from if you think about like last names for instance that sometimes you know it used to tell you a lot about family origins or trades like if your name is smith chances are there was a smith Mm -hmm. right back in your lineage things like that so this question about where you're from is also about Jesus's family and his origins as far as his birth. Because as Ratzinger points out, there's a bit of a tension that you see in the crowds where sometimes they're saying, we know where this guy's from, right? And it's a question about, they're kind of, they're, well, why, what's so special about this person? Or how does he know so much? We know where he's from. We know who his parents are. He didn't go to, you know, he wasn't sent off to classical school, right? All of these things. So where does he get this wisdom from? Because we know where he's from. We know his parents, right? This shouldn't be happening. He was a carpenter. And on the other yeah. hand, you also have people saying, right, wait, well, where, wait, where is he from? Mm-hmm. You know, because it's a, it's a question where, well, we don't know in a certain sense, because he's demonstrating throughout his public life, something that shouldn't, that people recognize that there's, there's some cognitive dissonance between who they think he is and who, where they, where they think he's from and what they're seeing happening in his life. Right. don't match up. So I think on the ground, it was very easy for them to see, okay, he's from Nazareth. This is his mother. Um, you know, it says, you know, is not this Jesus, he's father and mother we know. Um, mm-hmm. And then also the sort of ordinariness of Christ. And yet everyone's confused. And this shows just how mystical and like spiritual and the 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 depth and the healings and the miracles all associated everyone was questioning what was going on. There was some higher purpose moving people's souls to question this. So there's a sort of twofold thing going on here. So you can, you can say, okay, you can name the on the ground, you know, where Christ is from and his humanity. 
but there was obviously something more going on. Yeah. So they recognize something novel is happening. The gospels say things like, you know, and they, they were amazed and they marveled because he spoke with authority, mm-hmm. not like the scribes, right? So it's okay. Something weird is happening. And obviously people are drawn to it, right? He's charismatic in a particular way. Obviously we weren't there. It's hard to say just what it was like, mm-hmm. right? But they also, most of them know or think they know, you know, a little bit of both right, about his lineage, about his parents. It seems like very right, humble beginnings. People, you know, basically talk about how useless like his hometown was, you know, anything goes to, you know, can anything good come from Nazareth? Right. Right. Which is kind of an ironic statement because the point is, well, yes, I mean, the good thing came from Nazareth ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you, and, and do you have anything else before we get to the contradictory genealogies no let's do it so i mean the first thing is the fact is they are contradictory on the surface of them right they don't match up in other words um can you explain that a little for people who maybe just didn't get the book or something like just just a touch yeah sure basically so so obviously we're talking about matthew and luke because mark doesn't have an infancy narrative he starts with john the baptist he starts in media res and things just shoot along super fast that's what mark is mark is just a breathless sprint from the baptist to the cross and john obviously starts with christ's pre-existence so we're dealing with matthew and luke in matthew as he points out on where are these page numbers page four and five he starts talking about these genealogies and so the names in the genealogies are different and the number of names they include are different in Matthew, you get three sets of 14. So what is that? 14, 28, 40. I don't know. <laughs> I did theology, not mathematics. Anyway, it's less than Luke. Because Luke has Luke has 72, right? That's the one. For some reason, my brain wants to say 76. Okay, yeah, it is 76. So on page nine, he says, yeah, in page nine, he points out there's 76 names in Luke Mm -hmm. and far less than that in Matthew, whatever the math is. I can't do that. But so the difference between them is really interesting because obviously you can't line them up together and say, oh, these match because the numbers are different. The names are different. So Mm -hmm. you could sort of simplistically think, oh, well, either one of them is wrong and the other made it up. Or vice versa, this one is cor- the correct one and the other one made it up. Or you could think, well, they're just both not correct, right? Because they pay- can't both be correct. That's sort of the basic assumption. But the problem with that is that, first of all, Matthew and Luke are theologians, first of all. They're not historians. So they're not really, they're not interested in doing history the way that we would be interested in doing history. Because as a modern, you'd think, what's your genealogy? And you would expect to say, if you're going to go back 20 generations, say, you just list all 20 in perfect order, right? That's not what they say that they're doing. Because if I said, I'm the son of Arthur, right? Well, that's my grandfather, right? But if I'm the son of my father and my father is the son of his father, technically I'm a son of the ancestor. Mm -hmm. So first of all, you can skip generations and have it not be contradictory, Mm -hmm. right? Just like eventually we get to Christ is the son of Adam, right? That makes sense. Saying Christ is the son of Adam is true. It doesn't mean that he was Adam's biological son or or literal son, right? We're talking about eventually on down the line, he's the son of this person. So you can skip generations. Ratzinger also brings up the point that you can 
one of the things that we we see clearly is that there's also the inclusion of both biological fathers and adoptive fathers here too. So if the genealogies split where they both agree on one name, but then say that their fathers have two different names, you say, well, one of them's the biological father and one of them's an adoptive father on top of the fact that even in the gospels, we see that people have multiple names, right? Nathaniel is also Bartholomew mm-hmm. and they're the same person in the gospels, right? So there's all these different examples of why the genealogies might be different without having to say, well, one of them must be wrong, right? They can both be right, but they have multiple different ways of doing genealogies. And the second thing is they have different purposes, right? What Matthew is doing with his genealogy is different one than what, what Luke is trying to say with mm-hmm. his. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So something interesting about Matthew's genealogy are the four women mentioned, mm-hmm. right? So why do these women appear in the genealogy? So he, so Ratzinger point brings up two or three different, what would you call them? Uh, hypotheses, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, well, why these, why these one, why these four? I mean, mm-hmm. ultimately five, right? When you get to Mary, but the first four, the first hypothesis he mentions on page seven is, oh, well, they're all sinners. And he says, well, I mean, that's not really helpful because they're not all sinners in the same way. And technically, I mean, of course, all of them are sinners. They're just people, right? Um, but one, the thing that he points out that is really, first of all, that's really important is that none of these women are actually Jewish, mm-hmm. which is curious because you would think that if this is, you know, if his lineage is Jewish heritage, you know, his lineage, if he's a son of Israel, this is really important. The fact that there's Gentile women who end up bearing children in Jesus's line shows a kind of universality to his mission, right? There's Jews and Gentiles together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, I don't think he mentions this, but I think that this is true. Uh, they all end up making choices that perpetuate Israel's legacy or lineage, and they all end up bearing children under unusual circumstances, mm-hmm. if you look at the four of them. So Tamar is judah's wife right one of israel's one of israel's children so tamar ends up uh she's she's the wife of judah's firstborn son her husband dies no one will marry her again so she tricks her father-in-law into getting her pregnant essentially Mm -hmm. so that she can have children in judah's line Mm -hmm. so if christ is the lion of judah it's important that judah's line has to last somehow mm-hmm. right obviously it's it's not an endorsement of what she did right but it's just a fact this is what she did rahab ends up risk and you know ends up risking her own life to save the israelite spies so that they can all survive right and then she marries into the tribe as well mm-hmm. ruth right everyone knows the story of ruth and naomi right and how they end up sort of <laughs> Uh, is scheming like a negative word, but they, they end up kind of scheming and how do we figure out how to, you know, get you married? And then Bathsheba, right? Everyone knows that story um, where, you know, David takes Bathsheba and she ends up bearing Solomon, 
who is the son of David. And they're all kind of ingenious, like in their own way. Like they, these women sort of take fate into their own hands mm-hmm. and end up perpetuating Israel's legacy because they're all concerned with their future. They're concerned with their children. They're concerned about what's going to happen. But then you get to Mary and you think, well, on the one hand, she's clearly bearing a child in unusual circumstances, right? She's clearly perpetuating Israel's legacy, but she kind of reverses it all where the four women previous now Bathsheba, right? Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth all seem to sort of take things into their own hands, right? Bathsheba doesn't do that when she's first with David, right? Because I think David's the one at fault Mm -hmm. in that instance. But afterwards, she's the one who kind of schemes to get Solomon on the throne. Mm -hmm. But Mary, it's really interesting. She kind of reverses that more human instinct to kind of scheme your way into something. And it's just sort of like purely receptive and obedient to this thing that God is doing instead. Yeah, so... I think what's interesting to me about these women is it all ends up working out for good, but they're all concerned with their motherhood. Like they're all concerned with children and that's like the role of women. Right. And, and then when you look at Mary, it's interesting because her circumstances are very unique as well. And they look like they're scandalous and they look like what's going on here you know what I mean however it's all deemed by God in this narrative and stories but but it does look a little strange and and you look at these women and you can kind of see God works in mysterious ways you know like God works in these like strange ways and Mm -hmm. through these these things and in us and doesn't that give us hope like that really gives me hope you know that he can work in our lives in in these ways um yeah yeah. i'm not sure i'd thought about it quite that way but i think that actually makes a lot of sense because even if like i said even if bathsheba i don't i so there's kind of a debate about like who's at fault in the david and bathsheba incident i'm pretty convinced that it's just purely david's fault for a whole bunch of reasons we don't have to get into but from the outside as we're you know as i just mentioned like even today there's there's kind of like a little debate i think it's a silly debate because i don't think it holds up but the fact is all four of them either did something kind of scandalous like tamar does yeah or could look scandalous right from the outside but also even with Bathsheba, she tried to get her son on the throne like there's there's a it has to do with motherhood it has to do with their children it has to do with their right but what i'm saying is that part of the Mary gets viewed the same way. That's yeah. part of what Joseph is worried about. Right? Yes. And what you can clearly see if it's, if all four of these women either do something scandalous or maybe could be suspected of it. Yeah. That's clearly what's sort of intimated about Mary as well, right? If Joseph at first is thinking, oh, well, you know, this is unexpected. I guess I'll, I guess we'll just end this, I suppose. Right. And has to, you know, he needs divine revelation to actually know what's going on. Otherwise, <laughs> he's supposed to. Right, know, right, right. right? Yeah. He needs the angel to come. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of my take on the, the women in the genealogy. Yep. I'm not sure. I'm sure there's more we could say, but should probably move on. I yes. Suppose. Yes. Um, anything else through here? No, mostly just now we're just getting to the heart of it where Mary conceives by the Holy spirit mm-hmm. and Joseph is the legal father and this is his history. 
Yeah. So that's actually something that I feel like I thought about for maybe the first time reading through this again. Mm-hmm. So it talks about, Ratzinger talks about like adoptive fathers. That's really important. That's clearly important in the the genealogies and the lineage. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, right, The so the angel coming to Joseph and Joseph, because Joseph has to choose, right? Joseph needs to make a choice too. I think sometimes we focus just on Mary's choice mm-hmm. and there's a certain sense in which that's appropriate because that's that's the key one, right? That's, right? that's the one on which, you know, history turns essentially, right? So that's why, you know, we talk about it. We write books about it. We do all of our artwork about it, right? Mm-hmm. No one's painting, you know, Caravaggio is not painting a painting of, you know, at least I'm not, I don't think so, right? Of Joseph, you know, adopting Jesus. But there's a sense in which that's Joseph's like fiat moment oh, as well, wow. yeah. right? His adoptive act, Because he has to, I mean, Joseph could have just chosen to ignore the angel. He could have just run off, you know, or run off off on his own, right? But he needs to legally take responsibility for Christ to be the son of David. And we can get into questions of whether Mary is actually of David's line too. There's like a decent argument for that. But regardless of whether that's true, Joseph needs to adopt Christ legally Mm -hmm. according to what we're what we're reading here and so that's kind of his yes moment too mm-hmm. so it's not as obvious or explicit but it's still there and i just i thought that was really interesting that is really interesting and it it kind of yeah just in a bigger picture mindset just is a reminder that we're all supposed to imitate mary's yes so he did it in the most grand way i think um imitating her yes and that we're supposed to follow that in our own lives with our own yeses so we're on we're on page eight now. That's what we're looking at. And nine, um, if you're following along. I guess maybe one last thing about the genealogies we yeah. could talk about is just the difference of what why they had the different numbers and things. So yeah. he points out that what Matthew's doing with the three sets of 14 is to just point to the Davidic lineage. Okay. Um, because let's see, I think it's back on yeah, back on page four. He talks about Matthew really wants to highlight Jesus being the son of Abraham and the son of David. So for Matthew writing to this Jewish audience, he's really rooting it in these two major covenant moments, right? So there's a lot of things that Matthew will do later in the gospel where he'll compare Jesus to Moses. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't feel like he needs to do that now. But with the Davidic promises, the the promise to David was that David would have a king on the throne forever Mm -hmm. and at the time it didn't really look like that promise had been fulfilled obviously um and so that's really important and then him being the son of abraham it was the promise to abraham that it was the universal promise right where right after the first 11 chapters of genesis where everything just keeps going wrong it's almost like god keeps trying to do the same thing over and over again adam and eve they fail. All right, we'll send Noah and they mess up too. And now we'll, uh, okay, then they have the Tower of Babel and we have to split everyone up, right? So he essentially sends everyone out to the nations and divides everyone. Mm-hmm. And then right after Babel, you get Abraham to whom the promise is to unite everyone again. So he says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. Mm-hmm. So for Matthew to talk about him being the son of Abraham and David is to sort of bring the whole of it sort of back together. Right. Which is really interesting. 
Yeah. Well, the church, mm -hmm. the church is being formed. Yeah. And then if yeah. Luke is concerned about Jews and Gentiles, that makes a lot of sense for what he does too. Cause Luke is almost, uh, you could almost call Luke the gospel of like representation because Luke also, Luke talks the most about what the women are thinking. He talks a lot about children and the poor. He's sort of including all these different groups when he's writing. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense that Luke is doing something different and they're just, they're both just doing something different. And it's just really, really interesting. Yeah, it is. So I think it's, it's not really that scandalous after all. It's, it's mostly just a different, um, way of communicating some certain things yeah they're just looking at something from a different perspective right that's it yeah yeah so we're on page nine is that where are we moving along yeah at the moment yeah okay so we're on page nine if you're following along um and let's see we have a few different notes here oh i suppose what goes along with luke's concern about the whole is that he if Matthew's concerned about Abraham and David, Luke's concerned about Adam, right? The head of the whole human race, mm -hmm. who himself is the son of God. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you had even noted here that this sentence, so Luke, on the contrary, descends from Jesus, the treetop down to the roots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So going the all the way of back to the existence. origins. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So it's not quite what John does with in the beginning was the word, but it's probably as close as you can get from a sort of historical perspective. So it's really interesting that it goes all the way back to Adam. Um, and Ratzinger notes that, but what I noted in the margins was like, Adam was created and Christ wasn't. So even though Adam was, you know, the son of God, like he was made by God, right. And like the first human person, but like Christ was never created. So even well, though, so he's the new uh -huh. Adam, right? Yeah. But like, but it's well, actually shared, a bit different because true. he wasn't like breathed into life the way Adam was, you know? And No, yeah, definitely not the same way. Though he does participate in being created because Jesus is created, right? He came, Jesus, the man yeah. came to be. Right. Not from a human father. Okay, so this Adam is does. like so interesting because but like. The person of yeah. Christ, because Christ is a divine person. Yeah. Right? If you tell if you you tell someone, Jesus, you know, Christ is not a human person. Mm -hmm. They say, well, yeah, he was a man. Of course, he was a. They said, no, he's a divine person, with a human nature. Yeah. So it's this really interesting. Obviously, that's what we mean when we talk so about he was, his like, incarnation. We talk about the hypostatic union. I mean, he's an uncreated person, who somehow was created in time. Yeah. Because he came to be. It's so amazing in to the, think of in the man Jesus. So like yeah. he actually was giving given the breath of life, right? And like by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. Just so like in Adam. The body. Like, yeah. Wow. Okay. So I didn't think about this aspect because like for me it's like, okay, it's why God, some... like Christ is God and mm -hmm. that's that. But like, yeah, and you think about the incarnation and everything, but maybe I just have an emphasis on his his divinity sure or something I, I don't know but anyways this is really interesting because wow it's why some yeah. of the fathers the fathers give this typology of mary mary being like the soil of the garden of eden oh my goodness that is that just blows my mind right because like <laughs> so just like wow. god just like god through the holy spirit breathed life into the first man from the virgin earth yeah okay, god does the so same thing from the virgin earth 
of the virgin. Right. So this is a note here that I just want to say, this is why I love Catholicism because we do not limit God. Like God does these incredible things and we don't even limit it. We're like, wow, like everything is poetic. Everything has a reason. We can find um, these answers. We can explore this in the mystery of it, but it's like, we don't put him in a container. Uh, like this is such I mean, he a can't grand... do anything. Oh yeah. Okay. He can't make well. murder good. Well, but <laughs> okay. Evil. All right. Well, I know we're saying. not, we're not, we're not going to talk about that, but anyway, <laughs> Uh, yeah he's yeah. just so grand and like his his storytelling is so but the connection to adam is important as he points out on the next page on page 10 talking about saint irenaeus talking about how humanity starts over in christ yeah and all the gospels have some theology of new creation mm -hmm. they all do it in a little bit of a different way but that idea that christ is as paul calls him the last adam right is important in that we have Finally, right, like I just mentioned a few minutes ago, right, in Genesis, it seems like God just keeps, you know, hitting the restart button and then it all like crashes, you know, immediately afterward. But finally, you know, we actually have a fresh start in Christ, the new man. Yeah. So Jesus is made flesh. So we're we're looking at John the evangelist at this point. And we're we're nearing the end. Yeah, the right chapter. at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, this was, I went crazy highlighting on page 12. Um, Why? Because it was so Eucharistic. So it's looking at like how Christ was born of the blood and the flesh, but but he's God and all of it was just, and then the virginal conception and the birth of Christ being from God. I mean, there's the answer right there. Christ is from God. That is that is where he is from, and Just he was placed. Question, he was yeah. placed in human history, in salvation history, for a reason. Everyone in salvation history is important. Um, but he and so he was placed in this history. But he he's from God. Yeah, I mean, there's something. One of the reasons that so John, John I mean, I just John's my favorite book of the bible for a hundred different reasons right but there is a sense in which the infancy narratives themselves that matthew and luke give us are the most human thing in the gospels because there's not much more human than having a baby you know what i mean yep it can be hard it's really difficult to imagine or connect to in the beginning was the word right Mm -hmm. And it can be very difficult to connect to or sort of imagine what it would be like to encounter the risen Christ. Right? What would that be like? I mean, ev everyone's seen a baby, right? <laughs> even mm -hmm. if you haven't held a baby yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it's why it's, it's why Christmas is so popular. One of the reasons I think even secularly, it's this extremely if, if you talk about Christmas and Easter, as kind of the twin poles of the Christian liturgical year, there's a sense in which it's a lot easier to wrap your mind around the Christmas mystery mm -hmm. than the Easter mystery. And we have experience with childbirth, right? None of us have personal experience with rising from the dead. I'm going to assume, right? Right. And so Matthew and Luke giving us these stories when Mark and John choose not to do them is something that's really precious. I mean, there's a reason we have four different gospels, right? To give us different things. Mm 
Do you have a favorite? Gospel? Sorry. Well, okay. Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. Number first, favorite gospel. Second, of Matthew and Luke, is there an infancy narrative you prefer? Oh, I or like that you Luke's. think is like a nice. I really like Luke's. Okay. What about you? Yeah, I think so too. I mean, Matthew is really, I like Matthew because A, you get more information about Joseph and B, you get the story of the Magi or the wise men or whatever they happen to be that Luke doesn't tell you about. Yeah. But I mean, if you made me pick, I guess I'm going to probably pick Luke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just for the different things that, that are included, right? Are there any details that you wish we, that you wish they included that they didn't? I was trying to think about this the other day, like, they they tell us right they only pick a few things yeah right john tells us you know like the whole world couldn't contain the books that we could write about jesus and, but they it's like okay john you're only going to give us 21 chapters and you're <laughs> going to tell us that um so i know i was just curious if there's anything um no not really i think luke knew a lot um we know that from tradition right like there's a lot of church tradition that says you know that luke spent a lot of time with he our lady probably after the, talked to mary the, yeah. re the resurrection um and ascension and yeah even like painted a lot of things mm -hmm. and stuff like that so, so like our lady of chestahova luke painted tradition says and things like that um so i'm sure he knew a lot but i i feel with the gospels it's like the lord it's like god himself like it it's mysterious it's poetic and there actually is so much in there but we just have to read it over and over again to actually understand it and have ears to hear and eyes to see and we have to study it and we have to engage with it so i think there's a lot jam-packed in these gospels so i there's nothing like i would say like oh i want more because i think i mean i do want more but <laughs> i want to know all of it right but like but i can wait well, God, really. I, I want to be yeah like uh, when we get to heaven but but I think like everything is in there that we need to know to enter into the mystery. And I think that's like, how exciting is that? Like when you fall in love, there's something like sort of mysterious about it. Right. And that's what the gospels are to me. It's this sort of like igniting of, of falling in love with the Lord and God. And, and so there's a certain mystery and you have to discover and you have to enter into it fully and you have to read it over and over again. And you want to get to know them more and, and these sort of secrets of like what things mean have to be revealed to you, you know, as you pray with scripture and read theology, like read, read a good commentary, you know, these sorts of things from holy saints, like St. Saint Thomas Aquinas alongside the scriptures. So that's kind of how I think, I don't feel like I could ever say like, oh, I wish like the gospel okay, were on well, it too. That's the correct answer. <laughs> okay. Thank the you. The incorrect answer is that I wish John had written something to you. Okay. Right? If, if. If, Fair enough. if John is the longest and John spends the most time with Our Lady, you know, you got to think that she's probably, she has like some funny Jesus toddler stories or something, right? I mean, yeah, this is like our personalities coming nice. out. Like, on the <laughs> now, I'm, I'm like, I realize what, like, probably why they didn't. I mean, it's, there's, you know, Jesus lives a hidden life on purpose right. for most of his life. Um, and when you get into like Jesus toddler stories, you in, in, early Christian writings, that's when you realize you've happened upon like a, a heretical Gnostic gospel, <laughs> right? Of Jesus, you know, trying to play with his friends and building a little clay bird and his friend like smashes the clay bird. And so toddler Jesus strikes him dead. That's how, you know, you've encountered a false gospel. <laughs> Is that real? Yeah. I think that's, 
might be the gospel of thomas mm-hmm. or the proto-evangelion of james it's like a like a second or third be careful thing. people don't um, read those it's fine you i mean most people would probably only encounter them if they're watching like bad history channel documentaries oh, Easter gotcha. or something they happen every year but I'm going to quote the book now. No, we're going to we're going to go to page 12. Um towards the bottom of the page if you're following along. Um and it says, "But their faith gives them a new birth. They enter into the origin of Jesus Christ, which now becomes their own origin." And I said here, I just wrote on the side um so and then it says from Christ through faith in him they are now born of God. So obviously this points to baptism, right? But I I just I wrote down on the side through flesh and blood, like he came as flesh and blood and how Eucharistic is this? Like, I just, there's such a mystery and depth to this, um, in our faith. And, and I don't really have so much to commentary to say about it, except that it's wonderful. It's awesome in the true sense of the word. I guess we should probably end there. Okay. I mean, that's a good last word, right? Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so our so it says our true genealogy is faith in Jesus. It's faith. So I think, you know, faith, we can't we can't earn faith, we can't work for faith, we can't practice faith. We have to pray for faith and we have to receive the gift of faith. So going into this Advent season where it we're a couple days into Advent, let's pray for a deeper faith. Amen. Amen. All right. See you next week. See you next week. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for listening. Hopefully you'll be able to get a lot out of reading this book, this Advent. Um, If you haven't yet, if you just happen to stumble upon this recording or podcast or someone told you about it, uh, make sure to sign up for the Theology and Reality Substack so you can get all the notifications and everything that comes out every week for that. Uh, Again, thanks so much for listening. Couldn't do this without you. We're very excited to show up again next week. So I really hope, uh, we really hope, of course, that we will have you along for the ride. So until then, happy Advent and God bless.